The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Z Healing Toolbox, Tips and Tools for Navigating Grief and Trauma. I am your host, Susan Hannafin McNabb, social worker, educator, and author of the five-time award-winning guidebook, A to Z Healing Toolbox, a practical guide for navigating grief and trauma with intention. Together on this podcast, we will discover 26 powerful action-based tools and resources that will counter the negative effects of grief and trauma while assisting us in increased healing of the mind, body, and spirit. In each podcast episode, we will hear from inspirational guest experts in the fields of traumatic loss and bereavement, medical practitioners, mental health therapists, best-selling authors, spiritual leaders, nonprofit founders, and everyday individuals who are learning to live in the light despite profound darkness. Thank you for joining me. A to Z tips and tools are yours to integrate on your personal road to healing. Healing Tool Y, Your Self-Care. Daring to set boundaries is about having the courage to love ourselves, even when we risk disappointing others, by Brene Brown. Welcome to A to Z Healing Toolbox podcast, where we discuss tips and tools for navigating grief and trauma. Today, I am very excited to welcome my good friend and colleague, Teresa Beshwaite. Teresa is a certified professional life coach and a master of public health who works exclusively with widowed people, helping them rebuild a life they love. She lost her husband, Ted, in 2012 and has since reconstructed her life and created a next chapter filled with new meaning, purpose, and love. Teresa is going to chat with us today about different types of self-care, including one of my favorites, which is setting boundaries. And I don't think that as grievers or traumatized people, we think too much about setting boundaries, but really setting boundaries is a type of self-care because we can have people come in and suck our energy or we can have people come in and help with our energy. And that's a really wonderful distinction to take note of. When I used to think about self-care, it was all about getting a massage, getting outside in nature, taking a bubble bath. And now I know that there's so much more involved with self-care. 
One fabulous story about self-care is told in the A to Z Healing Toolbox book. The story is actually told by my friend Adam's father, Gary. And Gary wrote this about teaching his son, Adam, how to self-care throughout his lifetime. One of the jobs all parents have is to guide their children to process feelings and information for their own self-care. One particular incident taught me this. It was just a few months after my son's mother died in a sudden accident. We were in the backyard playing catch with a baseball. My son turned and gazed intently at some trees at the side of the yard. I saw mom, he said. I knelt by him and looked. Where was she, I asked. Next to that big tree, he pointed. He was so matter-of-fact that I had no doubt he saw her. From that point on, I never took anything he felt or saw lightly, always kept our conversations real and grounded, and drilled into him that whatever happened in life, he always had choices. My son grew to be very capable of managing his thoughts, feelings, and connections, rather than being overwhelmed or puzzled by them. He takes care of himself by maintaining close friendships, traveling to see family members, integrating sports and recreation, and exploring the world as his mother would have. Self-care can encompass so many different parts of our lives, and it's so important for us as grieving and traumatized individuals to really look at self-care with a wide scope rather than a very narrow scope. And so I'm so excited to welcome Teresa here today to talk to us a little bit about self-care and the wide scope. Well, today on the podcast, I am so excited to invite my friend and colleague, really, Teresa Beshwait. She is going to be chatting with us about self-care and maybe not the typical self-care that you think about. But thank you for being here, Teresa. It is my pleasure, my friend. Thanks for having me. No problem. You know, I have to start this with a little story because I know we're going to talk about healing tool why or self-care. But um, a few months ago, Teresa and I were at Camp Widow San Diego. There were 400 attendees. I was running around like a nut because I also work for Soaring Spirits. And Teresa, you were so nice. You said, is there anything you need? Is there anything I can do for you? Because when I'm trying to run a conference for 400 people, I'm not thinking about my self-care. I'm thinking about everyone else's. And I looked at her and I said, toothpaste. I have not brushed my teeth in a day and a half. I like I didn't bring toothpaste. So Teresa went and got me toothpaste. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> I've done enough conferences that I do know what it's like. And I wasn't in envy of you those few days. Well, I appreciate you thinking of me. Uh, but enough about the toothpaste. I am wondering if we could start by having you share a little bit about your story and how we came to meet at Camp Widow and just what brought you here and, and what you're doing in your life now. Absolutely. I, I think our stories are similar timeline wise, Susan, it was 2012. Uh, for me, September, my husband and I were out of town. Uh, we had been in Lake Tahoe and drove down into Carson city. We were celebrating our wedding anniversary, um, just having lunch, uh, when his heart stopped beating and 
uh, despite my, you know, my best efforts and all other best efforts, um, it was not to be. And so, as you know, as many of us know, you know, life puts that dividing line right down the middle of your life and divides everything into the before and the after. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So that is how, um, how my journey started. I, that was on a Friday, went to the funeral home in that state on Saturday, drove home Saturday night, Sunday, went to the funeral home here, which was our wedding anniversary and, and picked a casket, um, on that day, which felt so cruel at the time. But honestly, now that is my measuring stick for every other day. So you know, we, sometimes I can think, oh, this day is not that great. And then I go, oh, wait, but I'm not right. I'm not picking a casket today on my wedding anniversary. I can handle whatever life throws at me this day. Right. I didn't realize that we also had that bit in common that I got the knock on the door that the um, California Highway Patrol had found Brent and his vehicle and his body on our wedding anniversary. Gosh, what year, what wedding anniversary was it for you? It was seven. We had been together for 17 years, but dated for 10. That's a whole other podcast story. <laughs> and then we're married for seven. So that was seven. Yeah. Yeah. So that is, to your point, it is a measuring stick for all other things in life. And, um, and now I'm sitting here with your book in front of me. So... I know we're going to talk about self-care, but how did, you know, people will say, well, how did you get from that day picking out a casket on your wedding anniversary to, you know, we met at Camp Widow, you're out in the world, you wrote a book, you're the sudden widow coach. How did you get to that place and how did self-care come into play for you? Yeah. First of all, I didn't get there. You know, I spent easily the first six years on the run. Um, I live on 10 acres. I have, I have horses. I had a job that required a significant amount of travel about, I'd say about 50% on average. And I didn't know how to feel those horrific feelings. And I was afraid of them. And so I just stayed on the run thinking I could outrun it. And, um, I kind of knew that time didn't heal, but I still thought, well, me just maybe if I stay busy, right. Um, time could help. And so if, if the journey from, you know, that day to today were, were a freeway, I will just tell you that I spent most of my time taking exits and spinning in cul-de-sacs and, um, going off road. Um, but for me, when I discovered the tools of life coaching, and then I applied them to this uniquely difficult journey, things really started to click, but I spent, yeah, I I spent about six years on the run, which I promise you doesn't work. Um, and part of what I do today is help people not be on the run because we know it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work. Um, and so, so I learned so much about, you know, as we say, the, the best way to heal it is to feel it. And the best way through is indeed straight through, but it is so frightening, um, to feel those feelings. And so, yeah, mostly I avoided it. Then I discovered the tools of life coaching, but I knew all along when I was in that darkness, which was quite lonely, um, that I would someday come back 
for the others. Like it was important to me. I didn't know how, but I knew that it would be important to come back and be a light uh, for others in that incredibly dark darkness. Well, you certainly are a light now. And I really appreciate you bringing up the fact that you were spinning in cul-de-sacs and off-roading because that is so normal. I mean, we aren't taught what to do with grief or trauma. And so we spin and run and do all the things until we, at some point, hopefully come back around to, okay, I need to dig in here. So as far as self-care goes, you know, I have your book here in front of me, which I love because, and, and Teresa's book, by the way, tell everybody what your book is called. It is called Life Reconstructed, which, you know, it does feel like everything about your life is shattered. And so it's about, it's about putting those pieces back together, knowing full well that they're not going to go back together you know, in the same way, but I love the cover. I think the artist did a beautiful job. I love the cover too. It's a, a glass vase that is kind of shattered and there's a beautiful, I think it's a rose, a pink that's coming out and it just sparkles. So I love it. And the other thing I love about your book is that the chapters are very short and succinct and graspable for the grieving mind, right? The trauma mind. And um, you have a chapter summary at the end, you have applications that are easy to maneuver and understand. Now I'm looking here at chapter 27, which is entitled Extreme Exhaustion. Mm -hmm. So can you speak to that piece of the grief journey and how self-care coincides with that or can help with that? Absolutely. It's, it's physical exhaustion because insomnia was definitely a part of my life for many years after his loss, but it's also um, mental and emotional exhaustion, right? Being on the run, afraid to feel the feelings. It's, it's like being hunted down by some really big feelings and not thinking you had any choice, but to try to stay on the run. Um, absolutely. I think part of the exhaustion is not understanding what's normal for a human brain. What, what does grief look like for the human brain? So we think we're, this can't be normal. I must be doing this wrong, right? We, we think it shouldn't be going the way that it is going. Um, I think that absolutely contributes to the exhaustion. Um, not, not to mention that it's it can be hard to find people who get it who will walk alongside you and not try to coax you into what they perceive is the next phase of your healing. So I think all of those things really do contribute to that exhaustion. And, you know, I would say, understand what a normal brain um, does on grief. Remember that campaign years ago, it was your brain on drugs and yes. it had like the egg frying. Oh, um, Yes. Right. And so this is your brain on grief and it's, it's normal. The brain does some things that are completely normal, the fog, right. The exhaustion. Um, and sometimes we're not very nice to ourselves, right. So that, that mean inner self-talk also can, there's so many things that contribute, um, to the exhaustion. So a lot of what I talk about is what is normal, um, for a grieving brain. I love that. And you just mentioned, being 
kind or being the opposite of kind to ourselves. So where does that play in the self-care journey? Because many times people hear self-care, they think that's going to get a massage, going to get your nails done, you know, going outward to do something for yourself or, or taking a bath. But what would you say to people about their mind and how we can be more kind to ourselves that is a huge piece of self-care that I think most of us miss. Absolutely. We're not nice to ourselves. We are not nice to ourselves. It's, it's a good monitor to say, you know what? I say that to a friend that I care dearly about. And usually the answer is no. So, so, uh, you know, try to monitor our, your thoughts is such a good tip. We're not the best eavesdroppers or observers of our own thoughts, but we can be better at that if we work at it, if we're cognizant of it. So, you know, listen more carefully. And, and I always say, um, notice what your brain is offering you, right? It's just monitor what it's offering you just because you think it does not make it true. Right. You know, this Susan, we have to shout that from the rooftops, just because you think it does not mean that it's true. And just because your brain is offering you a thought does not mean that that thought serves you in any way, shape or form. So we have to notice, is this thought true? And is it serving me? And if we don't get two yeses, then right, it's time to look for some other true thoughts that can serve us. And that's the other thing I want to shout from the rooftops is, is thoughts are optional. Thoughts are just the habitual sentence that our brains like to play in the spirit of efficiency. It doesn't mean that there aren't an infinite number of other thoughts that we could be thinking on purpose with intentionality that would help us, that would help us heal and would help us be so much kinder to ourselves. Such a good point. Now in your own healing journey, I know when we've talked before about toothpaste and other things, you mentioned that you live on 10 acres and that part of your healing journey was learning how to do things on your property. Was that a form of self-care for you? It was, it was. Um, yes. You know, my, my default position is I'm going to have to do it all by myself and I don't know how to do it. And that overwhelm, which as you know, Susan mostly leads to inaction and spinning out in, in the cul-de-sacs. So one, it, it, I learned one thing at a time, if I need to do it routinely, I will get someone to teach me. If it doesn't happen routinely, I'm not going to feel responsible to make it happen. But absolutely one of the most healing things I learned early on, I wanted to, I wanted to learn to weld and I needed to build some fence. And so I found a neighbor who taught me to weld. And that was just fun. It was creative. It was the first thing I was learning that I wanted to learn because, you know, fixing sprinklers wasn't really high on my list of things I wanted to learn. Uh, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, so I learned, I learned a lot and some of it was very healing for me and one little notch on my belt, right? I can, okay. I know what that is. Um, I know how to fix it next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So it did help me build myself confidence. Um, and it, it helped me remember, I think it's important for us to remember what is not lost. Yes. Like, so much is granted. I'm not saying that that's not true. It's absolutely true, but 
there's a lot of us that's not lost, a lot of who we are and a lot of what we do know and a lot of what we can do and can learn to do that is not lost. Such a great point. And you know, you you kind of tied self-care and self-confidence there in your last sentence. Mm-hmm. What do you advise people that come to you for coaching? You know, how how can they up the ante on their self-care and their self-confidence? Because those two are tied, right? And that's not something as a widowed person I ever thought that my self-confidence would be tied to my widowhood or self-care. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. Gosh, it's so much of us is changed so dramatically and literally in that one moment. And, you know, I teach a pretty simple three-step process um, to answer your question. Number one, observe those thoughts objectively uh, as best we can. Number two, step two is we want to analyze those thoughts and decide which ones we want to continue thinking on purpose and which ones we want to stop believing on purpose. And then step three is to think and therefore feel and therefore act with intentionality. And that's what creates the results um, that we want for ourselves, those little mini steps toward our healing. The truth is that we create any feeling um, based on the thought we're thinking. So if if I'm feeling un- not confident, uncertain, unsure of myself and my abilities is because I'm thinking the thought like, I don't know how to do this. How can I possibly do this without him? Right. I, I'm thinking like that brand of thought. So of course that leads to insecurity, uncertainty, lack of confidence. Um, but if I can else ask myself what else is true, then I can, I can create authentic confidence in my, in my body that I can genuinely feel because I'm thinking a genuinely true thought that I absolutely believe. So we work on, uh, we can't change the circumstance. We can't bring them back, but what we can do is choose our thoughts carefully and choose thoughts that are true and choose thoughts that do serve us. And by doing that, we can really can create any feeling that serves us as well, including confidence. To your point about choosing, there is a chapter in your book, chapter four, and it's entitled, Why Can't I Stop Overeating, Overdrinking, Overspending, or Binge Watching? So why is that? I mean, part of self-care for me was like, okay, I need to eat well. Okay, I need to get sleep. Okay, I need to drink enough water. But meanwhile, so many people who are in grief are overeating, over binging, over whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So can you speak to that? Yeah, we could keep going with that list too. Just over busy, we'd start making up words at some point, but over busying, um, you know, Anything that our brain, you know, our, our human brains are version 1.0. They haven't evolved. Our primitive brains have not evolved from way back in the day when we could have been attacked by a tiger this afternoon, very likely, right? So when that primitive part of our brain feels such intense, incredible pain, unprecedented pain, very likely it says, well, pain equals probable danger equals we might die. So we need to numb that pain immediately. And so of course it's so, it's so primal that urge it's hard to resist when the brain says numb this pain immediately. And so almost all of us, I don't know, I'm going to say all of us have like this numbing agent of choice, this go-to 
way to numb. And I kind of use numb in air quotes because it's, it's not a long-term uh, permanent numbing. It's just a short-term diversion. Sure. Yeah. And, and most of it leads to double the problems because right. If, if we're eating unhealthfully to numb the pain, there's a, there's a few moments of maybe a, a numbing effect, but then we have two problems in that we're, we're gaining weight, right. We're not nourishing our body. And by the way, that pain's still there. Right. And so just understand, and this is another great opportunity to be kind to yourself and understand the reason I can't stop, you know, scrolling or Netflixing or eating, um, or drinking or, or pornography, you name it. I mean, you name it is because my primitive brain is a traumatized, be scared to death. Um, C doesn't know how to deal with these unprecedented, difficult feelings. And it's actually doing its job, suggesting that we try to find a way to numb those feelings, right? Version 1.0 brain technically doing its job. We don't hate on our pancreas for doing its job, right? So, so let's be kind to our primitive brain and go, okay, brain, I hear you. I know we're scared. I know we don't know how to deal with this pain. It's unprecedented, but we are actually okay. We're not going to, right. It's not fatal. This, this horrible feeling it's horrible. Yes, but it's not forever. And it's not fatal. We're going to be okay. That's using a different part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex to, to say, we've got this. It is terrible. We're going to be okay. Right. And having the courage to sit with that feeling and feel it. And here's the trick. Um, the more that we are able to literally invite that feeling in and witness it in our body and be with it within seconds, I promise it will loosen its grip. This is what I wish I had known from day one, took me six years to figure out it will literally loosen its grip. If we have the courage to stop and face it and feel it. Courage is such a huge key, right? Courage and education and intention and authenticity, all of those words. Um, one of the healing tools in the A to Z healing toolbox is letter D, which is doing your homework, as in understanding more about what's going on. So I love the fact that you're educating people on the brain, you know, what's actually happening. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about a book that I read early in my journey, probably seven years ago now, Brent died nine years ago, and it's by the Grief Recovery Institute, the Grief Recovery Method. And I don't know if you you know that book or that method, but in one of the chapters, they, they entitle the chapter STURBS, S-T-E-R-B. What is a STURB? Short-term energy releasing behavior. All the numbing behaviors you're talking about overeating, over drinking, over sexing, over texting, over Facebook, just anything, over shopping, anything, right? It could be exercise, just an energy releasing behavior that, as you say, will not get us where we want to go, but our brain is on fear mode, right? So it's trying to help us, but the behavior isn't helping in the end. That's right. I even have a client, this, this is like the most, it's going to sound like the most nitpicky thing in the world, but I even had a client who she would feel the loneliness, the ache, you know, and she would go play the piano. And I just like, I think playing the piano was fantastic. And of course it's a great outlet, but here's the nitpicky part. I would say, yes, but it's an external attempt at a solution to an internal 
situation, which is, a, it was an unwillingness to feel the feeling. Um, so, so, you know, what I, what I offered her, what I encouraged her to do was first give loneliness, your undivided attention for like 60 or 90 seconds, feel it all the way through. And then if you want to play the piano, knock yourself out, but don't do it as a fix, right? Because what we want to help people do is flex. If there was a muscle called, I'm willing to feel any feeling because PS I've already felt the worst, most horrific feelings that I will probably ever feel in my life. So we want to flex that muscle and, and flex it every day because you know what, Susan, you know, we, we make so many decisions in our life based on our unwillingness to feel this feeling or that feeling. Oh no, I can't apply for that job because if I don't get it, I'll feel embarrassed or I'll feel like a failure, right? Fear yes. of feelings dictates every decision in our lives. And one, I hate to want, I'll say outcome. It's not a benefit, but one outcome of of living life after loss is we've already been in the depths. So, so embarrassment, or I don't know, any kind of feeling that life could give us now is going to pale in comparison. So my, my advice is flex the muscle called I'm willing to feel any feeling because I've already felt the worst. Such a great point. Now you mentioned your client who went to play the piano. And I know you have lots of clients. You do individual sessions and groups as well, correct? Mm -hmm. So when you are in a solo session or a group session and inevitably you feel the need to direct people towards some sort of self-care options because they are exhausted or you know barely able to function, which is completely understandable, what do you suggest for people who are maybe just at the beginning of their journey, you know, mid in their journey, or, you know, you and I are both nine years out. So I still practice self-care all the time. So I guess the first question would be, what do you suggest to clients who are early, mid? And then the second question is, you know, how, how long does self-care last? Like, can we, do we still need to be doing this nine, 10, 11 years later? Absolutely. Oh, so such a great question. My advice um, starts early on, but it does carry through. And, and it, first and foremost, just control what's controllable for you. Life certainly spun out of control, um, but what can we control? And so let's do those things because it does feel good. I don't know if you would, you, if you uh, remember this, Susan, but I remember needing to have control, some form of control. Oh yes. Yeah. My poor mom did laundry for me trying to, trying to help. And I like blew my lid because she had washed something of Ted's. Yes. I lost my mind. Well, when things are out of control, we need to be able to control something, right? Yeah. Or somebody. Absolutely. And so one way we can take care of ourselves is to exert that control where we can. So like, do we have complete control over how much sleep we get or don't get? Probably not, but can we, um, try to eat as healthfully as we can? Can we shut down social media maybe completely or to a degree that that serves us? Um, can we experiment with what we need the most? I, I think you and I share this, what I realized I needed the most was silence and solitude in pretty big doses. Um, so, so can we figure out what we need the most and make sure that we get those? Um, also, 
you know, I've written about conversation stoppers. I think we have to get, get, um, good at stopping conversations, especially now, especially with loss. And so that, so that we don't let people drain us of the tiny bit of energy that we actually do have, um, basically polite ways to say, I'm not willing to have this conversation. I think that is, is a huge help in self-care. One of my personal favorites is, oh, I don't expect you to understand what this is like for me. I'm glad that you don't. Um, also, why do you ask? If you're being asked a question that, you know, really, my husband taught me that years ago, why do you ask? It gives them um, an opportunity to take ownership of a question and it gives us time to think and say, and, and then be ready with our next response, which could be, I'm not, um, not in a place that I feel comfortable discussing that. I love that. And really what I hear you talking about is setting boundaries, which is a massive form of self-care that people don't usually think about when we think about self-care, I mean, it's, oh, go exercise. Oh, you know, chat with somebody on the phone, make sure that you're not isolating, but boundaries are huge. So I love those ideas. They're huge. And, and another element of it is, is letting friendships come to completion um, early on and midway. And I don't know, Susan, I think you and I probably are similar in that I haven't changed the rules. So when Ted first died, I let friendships come to a close um, that I chose, like there was very few people that I could be with. Um, even, even some really wonderful, kind people who I enjoy very much. I, I, um, ended the amount of time that I would be willing to spend in person just because I could feel the finite amount of energy I had slipping away. Yes. Yeah. I'm the same. And I actually call it putting people on the shelf. Mm -hmm. So friendships that I had for 20 years, you know, the anxiety that came from that individual toward me, where it should have been the other way around, right? But I found I was trying to hold the space for them and I just could not and would not do that. So I put people on the proverbial shelf mm -hmm. and every once in a while I would try to take them back down. And ultimately I was never able to take down some of the people. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that is a huge form of self-care, just knowing what we need to do for us, what boundaries we need to put in place for us. And I heard this wonderful analogy at a retreat I was on last year. And um, the gentleman who was giving the, treat, the retreat was talking about boundaries. And he said, okay, everybody, picture a house. And he drew a house, the outline of a house on the big whiteboard. And then he said, okay, now picture all the different rooms you have in the house, master bedroom, bathroom, dining room, family room, you know, here's the front door, here's your doorstep, here's the yard, this is your house, right? And he said, so if there's someone that you wouldn't usually invite into your master bedroom, but they are suddenly in the master bedroom with you, number one, do you want them in there? Mm -hmm. And all of us were like, no. And he said, okay, so what happens, what should happen is you don't move your boundary, you move the person. Mm -hmm. So the walls remain, 
your space remains, you need to move the person, move them onto your front doorstep, move them into your yard, move them into the family room if that's more comfortable, but don't let everybody come in to your master bedroom when you are grieving, especially. I love that analogy. And you know, there are people that are going to back away from us because for, for lots of reasons, um, we don't have to personalize that and agonize over that. Um, and, and there are people that we will now gravitate to that we very much want to be with who, um, who don't complain about stupid stuff, right. Who, um, who are deep, those deep people. That's why I want to hang out with you, Teresa. I, I feel the same, my friend. <laughs> Put me in a room of people who I don't know a soul and I will find the person 10 times out of 10 who is like twice widowed and lost in adults because yes. these are the people I want to hang around with. They're I deep. call them, yeah, deep. I call them unicorns because <laughs> I've met some unicorns that are bereaved parents, are bereaved siblings, are bereaved spouses, but I've also met some really fascinating unicorns who are masters at holding the space, even though they haven't been in that space themselves. Mm -hmm. And I, I love finding those people. I think that's fascinating to, uh, to come across people who haven't really had anything major happen in their life, yet they are so willing and able to hold the space. And for me, when I find those people, that's my self-care. I want to spend more time with them because they can help support me. They can help support my child. And I'm thinking about two individuals as I talk about this. And one is our friend, Miss Laugh, that actually is her last name. And um, she, you know, hasn't had significant loss in her life, but really wanted to be there for my son and I. So she would come over every Friday after work, drive through rush hour traffic to bring us dinner. Then she would get Jacob in the bathtub and give him a bath with a French accent. She's hilarious. She always makes us laugh. And he was at the salon in France, right? Getting it, getting his hair washed and she would read him a book and help him brush his teeth and get him to bed and read him a story. And then she'd come out and just cry with me. Mm. And here's a woman who could just hold the space. It was amazing. And then the other example I have, these are my self-care people. Um, actually, Jacob's former preschool teacher. We met her when Jacob was three. Jacob's dad dies when he's five. And she just showed up and she has been showing up for us for the last nine years, doing things like, I know you can't handle the holidays, Susan, let me get your tree. I will get your lights and Jacob and I and my girls will do the whole thing. Just oh. go out for the day and we will do it all. Mm. So I think a huge part of self-care too, in addition to all the things we're talking about, setting boundaries is also finding your people who just fill you up rather than deplete you, right? Unapologetically, do all of that unapologetically close, you know, bring friendships to closure, put boundaries up, end conversations and be drawn to the people who are your forms of self-care and make no apologies to anyone for it. On that note, I would love for people to know a little bit more about how they can find you, what you're doing in the world, uh, because you are one of the gurus of helping people heal. And I really appreciate you. So I want to share you with everyone. And um, please tell us what you're doing. Where can people find you? You're so kind. I can be found at the suddenwidowcoach.com. 
I have uh, some wonderful client stories there. I'm a frequent, I blog every week. So you can join my blog list if you'd like to receive um, my blogs and my book is called Life Reconstructed and it's available on Amazon. So happy to, happy to have a call um, with folks if they'd like to see if maybe my resources can help them. And if not, I will absolutely point them in the direction of resources that can. Excellent. And I love having you as a resource because I often point people your direction. So I love collaborating. That's what, that's what it's all about, right? Healing and collaboration and community. Absolutely. Thank you so much, my friend, for coming on the show and we will see each other soon. My pleasure. Take care. A to Z Healing Toolbox offers professional trainings, live and virtual workshops, podcast interviews, healing guidebooks, speaking engagements at conferences nationwide, small group virtual support, and solo sessions individually tailored to meet your unique needs. Books can be found on the A to Z Healing Toolbox website, on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, and your local bookstore. If you would like to connect with Susan and join a small group for virtual support or schedule a solo session, please contact Susan at a to z healing toolbox.com. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.